It's the True Penny Show with your host, James True Penny. Hello! Hello and welcome to the True Penny Show. My name's James True Penny. This is my show, and today we return to the Ring of Honor 18th anniversary special celebrations. Um, as you know, Ring of Honor have really stepped up their game in these last few weeks because they've had literally nothing else to do. And for a company that this show has berated many, many times in their past for their lackluster efforts, they've actually tried really hard. So we've come to explore a bit more of their video catalogue and to join me once again on this extravaganza of North Indi- northeastern indiness, and it doesn't get much more northeastern nor indie than this. We <laughs> Mr. Alex Watt. How are you, sir? I'm good, yeah. Good to do one of these again. We had a lot of fun doing the Steen and Generico one, so yeah, thought we'd do thought we'd do another one. I think people might have heard of these two guys, potentially, that we're going to cover today. Yes, today we're going to look at the CM Punk era, in fact, if you will, the first summer of Punk in 2006. And also we're going to look at uh, Daniel Bryan, or Brian Danielson, as he was known then, in his... In his uh, non-slave name as I think it's people <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, yeah who I, I can't one of the are they Italian girl Conti who got released from WWE this week she's mm-hmm. changed her Twitter uh, caption to uh, unleashed and she's a picture of her in chains broken with her wrist breaking her chains apart yeah, there's quite a few of those, like Slater and Zack Ryder putting out T-shirts, playing on that idea as well. I think. Like camera metaphors, ahoy! Yeah, um, <laughs> uh, coming your way. I did did like how Luke Gallows and Machine Gun Carl Anderson had had literally had talking shop promos prepped, ready to go the moment they got fired. Oh yeah, did you listen to their latest talking shop? Did not get a chance to listen to it yet. Um, it I've been... It's very funny the way that they're obviously talking about like the releases and stuff. And Rocky Romero's like two of the guys who saved WrestleMania this year released <laughs> <laughs> like a week later. Oh yes, but that's the, as, as far as burning bridges is concerned, there isn't more subtle more ways of burning bridges than doing a podcast with a front office member in New Japan Pro Wrestling. The moment yeah. you left WWE. Well, I mean but... the fact that. Carl basically put out a video the next day implying he's just going to go straight back to Japan. Is yeah, I enjoyed that very much. And as Tom Tonga said, Bullet Club is for life. So mm-hmm. we can see good times ahead, I feel, for New Japan Pro Wrestling. Anyway, we're going to go back 15 years. 15 years. 10 years before this podcast even started. And we're gonna, yeah, we're going to look at the history of CM Punk uh, there is the 18th anniversary, and there's three classic matches, as there was for the Steen Erico uh, collections that we looked at. Now, these matches hail from the 2005-2006 period. Um, you've got Alex Shelley from the third anniversary show on the 25th uh, of February 2005. That's the opener. And let's start there. Well, I was going to say, before we before we start talking about the matches, what about sort of Punk and Brian in general in this period because i think see what you think on this but in north america maybe the two most influential guys of their generation potentially quite a big statement uh, i know but i think I that say, 
yeah, I would say there is a. I would say these two, but also I'd say Chris Hero. The trouble is, Chris Hero doesn't get the respect he deserves for what he's done in the same time frame. Mm. Nor does mm. he get the. He didn't get his WrestleMania main event like those two did. He didn't get the big money payoff he really should have done for the work he put in. In comparison, because he's well, slightly Punk, Punk didn't get his WrestleMania main event either, technically, uh, which is part of the reason why he quit. <laughs> Wrestled the Undertaker. I mean, you know, he got more than Chris Hero did. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I'm just being slightly facetious there. <laughs> but you know, what I mean, I think I because I, um, because you also got to bear in mind before this where Punk got his made name name made. I'll get it right. Was wrestling Chris Hero every weekend? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Or you know, IWA Mid South, and then FWA wanted him in Europe, so they shipped off Europe and wrestled him in in um, Bethnal Green, and then. Somebody wanted them in Canada, and then somebody wanted them in California for PWG, and they went back and forth across two continents for about 18 months. Yeah, it's something he actually talks about extensively on his WWE DVD, doesn't he? Really, like, praises Chris Hero for that period. Yeah, certainly. And also, you know, they're still tight. I mean, Punk wanted Chris Hero to be in the Shield. He didn't want uh, Roman Reigns. Roman Reigns wasn't Mm. his... You know, it kind of got hijacked. It was the, the shield was his angle. That's what he wanted as a heater, and it ended up being Roman Reigns. And Chris Hero got the short end of the stick, as it were. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's. I think those three are probably uh, you. And also, Hero didn't have a big singles run in Ring of Honor. Him and uh, Castanoli, or you know Cesaro, as we know him today, did have a big tag team run in Ring of Honor. Kings of Wrestling were one of, if not the. Mm influential tag teams in pro wrestling history uh but again but they fall under the radar because they weren't the briscoes in ring of honor and they weren't the american walls and they weren't a bunch of other people and mm-hmm. it's it's annoying to me because damn it they were really really good oh and, yeah yeah and it's just like what but what can you do uh but having said that getting back to punk punk had built this reputation in the indie world as this main event level star and mm-hmm. you do Watching all three of these matches, especially towards like the, the later ones, you do sense, get this sense of there is a star quality about him that other wrestlers don't have on these tapes. And you can yeah. see he became a main eventer for Ring of Honor. You know, he, and he was commodity <laughs> back then as well. We're just talking about a time when he'd kind of turned his back on Impact Wrestling and chosen Ring of Honor as his path, despite the fact that Impact was probably a quicker route to success. But fell out because of the Feinstein incident, and they weren't going to work with Ring of Honor anymore. And he decided that Ring of Honor was going to be the place once they sorted their problems out, which they did do. And he came in, and you know he was the he was the key guy for Ring of Honor. Whereas mm. AJ Styles went the other way and became the key guy for Impact Wrestling. And it turned out that Punk was right in the short term. It was Punk's pathway to fame and stardom in the WWE, whereas AJ Styles had to wait another decade to get to where he's been yeah uh, that's a good point yeah i think with punk it was it was the creative control side wasn't it because he did have so much freedom in ring of honor um and yeah it's it's interesting you mentioned chris here i hadn't i hadn't really thought of that angle because yeah punk and brian are always the first two names i think of when you talk about like the indie darlings who actually came in and really made their mark in wwe without really compromising their in-ring work too much as well because they were having obviously 
hard-hitting, technical matches as much as you can in WWE when yeah. they're at the top there. Um, and, yeah, I, I think it's interesting because, like, people always talk about this, like, 90s generation of, like, Benoit, Guerrero, Jericho, Malenko, and it was kind of like Brian, Punk, you've mentioned Hero, AJ, Samoa Joe, probably. That was kind of the 2000s group that that was my era <laughs> you know of growing up falling in love with wrestling i'm a little bit younger than you james sorry <laughs> um, so yeah. I mean, um, as well but if you look at like the standards wise you look at the dream matches that we want to put in this time period misawa and joe and well kind of kabashi and joe i should say not Masawa. well yeah it wasn't sour as well but mm. but you know, they didn't look out of place in legendary wrestler company if you see what i mean yeah, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Um, and like, because for me, it was those guys and Ring of Honor as a whole. I kind of touched on this on the last show when we did Steen and Generica, where it kind of opened my eyes in that period to what wrestling could be. You know, longer matches, technical wrestling, strong style. Then Japanese, you know, wrestling, I kind of got into on the back of that. Because, um, yeah, Joe versus Punk 2 was a game changer for me. I'm probably not the only one either from my era who saw that match and just had their mind completely blown open of what wrestling could be. Cause obviously the buzz around that getting the five stars from Dave Meltzer and everything else. Um, Cause I've said it before 2004, late 2004 was a rough time to be a WWE fan with like JBL and triple H on top of the company. And then you hear about, oh, these guys have just had a 60-minute a draw on the indies. Um, and it's not, like, dull for a single second. It's so well put together, and the whole trilogy was. I think that, and then we'll talk about Brian's um, Ring of Honor title run with, in a bit, which I think kind of added to that extra layers on what these guys were doing with wrestling it. Yeah, it definitely changed my perception and made me love wrestling more. And I'm sure there are a lot of people who had a similar thing with this kind of era of Ring of Honor. I think I think as well there was a what's remarkable about it is there was a production gap. Like mm. oh yeah, like if you watch WWE and WCW and even ECW to an extent in the '90s. The production values between difference between WCW and WWE is slim to none. In fact, WCW looked better a lot of the time because uh, they had a bigger budget, so they could spend mm. more money. Even EC, the original ECW arena stuff, yes, looked scrappy, but they were still running three camera sets. They knew what they were doing. They had directors who could cut, like Heyman was directing the show whilst he was managing it, he was running the show. He knew what he was doing about how to format a TV show and put it together. He'd learned from the very best. And you know, there wasn't much of a difference between the two. And then when Ring of Honor comes along, and to a lesser extent, Shikara, because I think Shikara have always had better production values than Ring of Honor. But uh, these indie companies come along, and you don't have... It's not necessarily that they haven't got the big equipment. Now, that helps. But it's more mm. to that they haven't got as much experience. There's, a, like, all of the... When, when you had little indie promotions, for one... Well, no regional territories, let's call it right, the local television company was handling production and they had the best available people in that area. You go watch back to the 80s and watch Dallas wrestling, like World Class Championship wrestling. 
it's some of the best produced wrestling of that era because the TV company put money into cameras. They had good directors. They were there every week. They learned the system. Whereas these things were being shot by private video companies and they just don't look as good as professional wrestling did in the past mm. or to their contemporary standards. And the fact that these matches went beyond those production values and people saw enough past those production values. And by this point, Ring of Honor three years in, they knew what they were doing, but it's still scrappy. It's not perfect. Like there were indie companies, there were better looking indie companies in the world, I'll be honest. Okay. Um, but, but the fact that, that everybody got beyond that and went, this stuff's really cool and really watchable. Now, there's a very tight demographic. You watch the crowds in these particular tapes, it's very much 18 to 30 year old male. Mm. Um, very, very, very much back party. <laughs> 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 um, and also, you know, that dynamic hasn't changed that much. To be honest with you, a lot of their fans are still the same guys who went to these shows 15 years ago. They're just in their mid 30s, early 40s now, rather than their late 20s. But they're, you know, it's still. It's still they're still chasing that demographic. They've opened that demographic up a little bit, and it's a bit wider than it used to be. But it's but the the things are there. All the nuts and bolts of what made Ring of Honor good in that time period are still there today. It's just better presented. The storylines are stronger. They've got more experience with depth. But this is where you could see where Ring of Honor was going. Three years in, they kind of know what they're doing. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Well, it's essentially um, ECW's fan base because they kind of stepped into yeah. that void but rather than you know it was obviously Gabe Sapolsky was the guy who kind of set it up um who was big in the original ECW and it was basically we're gonna fill that void but do completely the opposite and we're gonna focus on pure wrestling and the fact that they're our rules and we don't do hardcore stuff initially obviously that evolved as it as it went on but the fact that they had like this code of honor initially and all this kind of stuff, which, yeah, it was, it just made them stand out, I think, um, in a really interesting way. And that was something that during that period really appealed to me because it was the focus was the wrestling. And I think when, you know, at the time, WWE was the thing I'd been watching to then go and see this focus on the in-ring product above anything else and see the kind of output that was happening like you say that it was almost the opposite of the production values <laughs> like the production values are, are bad but the matches are incredible like particularly i think the output from guys like punk and brian during this period were pretty unbelievable for their years as well because that you know brian um was like 23, 24 during these matches we're going to talk about. And it's kind of ludicrous how good he is at that age. Yeah, but he, he, he had a strong apprenticeship by that point. Well, let's get to this first match, which was Alex Shelley versus Sam Punk. Now, watching Alex Shelley then compared to watching Alex Shelley now, it's like watching two different wrestlers. Yeah. The hyper, high-speed, lean you know, uh, strike-based offense of Alex Shelley versus this slow-paced submission, <laughs> more tra much more traditional professional wrestler. It's really mm -hmm. weird to watch it, this, the transition, because it's like not so much time splitter as 
land time forgot. <laughs> wow. Well, yeah, but yeah. <laughs> Your thoughts, Alex? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, first of all, like some really interesting picks for matches, I think, on these um, video collections. This one being maybe the one that stands out the most in that sense, because these aren't necessarily the Ring of Honor matches you automatically associate with Punk or Brian. Um, uh, but, yeah. but they are more likely to make money off them on streaming services. <laughs> yes, no, I realise that. I, this is obviously intended as kind of an introduction. I mean, we're covering six matches here. Four of these matches I hadn't actually seen before, believe it or not, um, even though I was obsessed with Ring of Honor in that period. But it was yeah. so um dvd based at the time that you basically had to pick on pick and choose which ones you were buying to not go bankrupt because they ran so many shows so um yeah i just didn't happen to have those dvds basically um and yeah with punk versus alex shelley i initially thought this is quite a strange one to include but i think the reason they've done it is this is really when the momentum started of Punk working his way back towards a title shot. He'd obviously had the series with Joe, lost um, the third match in the trilogy, and then this was him being boosted back towards the title um, of kind of working his way through Generation Next members, or in this case, an ex-Generation Next member. Um, and then obviously the next match on this set, which we'll talk about in a sec, is him challenging for the title. Um and yeah, I think you can also in this one really see this idea of him using the energy of the fans to his advantage, which then plays into the next match at his heel turn, which we'll talk about in a bit. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a good little match. Like you say, Alex Shelley is not the Alex Shelley we know, like works a very different style, looks different. Like you say, he doesn't look as lean as he would. He doesn't have kind of the blonde streaks in his hair that you almost now associate him with as well um and yeah it's like not not one of punk's classics in the promotion as i say but his classic matches did tend to go over 40 minutes usually so they probably had to include some shorter ones as well um I was gonna say, this yeah is like a non-main event match on a pay-per-view mm. um, and it's 20 minutes long it's like those shows must have been intense for like this is i think this is the thing that perhaps ring of honor suffered from at the time everything was so intense yeah like everything like it, there is no let up and you can't necessarily have that for sustained long-term success like even the commentators everything's a matter of life and death all the way through the show and there's no relief that's mm. the one major knock i have on ring of honor at the time I know they were trying to establish a style and stuff, but equally there was no actual relief from this relentless onslaught of wrestling all the time. Yeah, um, yeah. And I think, you know, it, there wasn't even any jokes on commentary. It's very dry. Not The commentary's not great, but it's not awful either. It's very listenable. But they, they are talking in that dead serious wrestling commentator voice all the time. And yeah. It's... It, it's not distracting, but I think that's one thing it's kind of suffers from. You know, you can get Kevin Kelly who comes along a few years later who can crack a joke but still keep a serious toe and can change gears a lot better. It just improved the presentation so much. Yeah, I, I think, think when they 
when they got some of the other guys on as well, like Nigel doing stuff, uh, Carino, people like that who could bring a bit more personality. Yeah, that that helped massively. Um, and yeah, the the schedule like for those wrestlers was so punishing as well. Um, it's something they talk about like in uh, the title matches on both releases, like this punishing schedule of being the Ring of Honor champion because they were trying to make this you know, a standout promotion doing wrestling in this intense right way, for lack of a better term. And yeah, it definitely must have been brutal <laughs> to be working those. Um this this is the thing, and that's worth just to just to aside there a second. Mm. Most of the style of this wrestling and the booking style of this wrestling was based on what all Japan and Noah were doing in the nineteen nineties. It's very King's Road style. Yeah. But you have to bear in mind that Masao wasn't wrestling like that five nights a week. He was wrestling like that maybe twice a month. Mm-hmm. And he was wrestling six-man tags at Hurricane Hall for the other 28 days of the month. Or what for, yeah, Noah and All Japan did two weeks on, two weeks off. So he was like doing one big match a fortnight and then doing, you know, six-man tags. But the American market does not allow for that. As New Japan have discovered and come undone a little bit with their North American draw, nobody wants to see a six-man tag in the main event. They want to see singles wrestler versus singles wrestler because that's what they've been programmed to that is right. And that kind of is another thing that made the Ring of Honor style at this point a lot less viable than it is now. Mm. They're not doing as many live shows. They're not having to rely on a live draw gate because they're a TV-based company. It's made it more watchable, I think. Yeah, I think also on that, it's like someone like Mizawa or, you know, Kobashi or whoever was in the main event at the time, they are big stars. Whereas at this point, part yeah. of the thing was these are guys trying to make a name for themselves and try and build this reputation. And they're kind but they're still having to work, you know, all these main events and have, you know, there's that pressure to have like a classic match all the time you know i mentioned like the punk joke thing i think as soon as that got eyes on it as five stars all of a sudden they're then having to try and top matches all the time which is something we've spoken about new japan having an issue with now because they've yeah. set the bar when you set the bar so high how do you then keep going further um and it's that's the same, say it's the same thing all japan women did in the 1990s we know that the manami toyota effect yeah. You know, those people were putting the best wrestling matches that ever happened together. And there there had to be a drop, and the drop was big because the people that came after them just quite frankly weren't as good. And that's not they were those people that came <laughs> along in the late nineties were some of the best wrestlers that ever lived, but they weren't yeah. as good as they thought. And how could they be? Yeah, so, which is something that Ring of Honor, I think, went through their own period of having yeah. that issue once particularly once you lost, like, Punk, Joe, um, Brian, Nigel, although, you know, there was a this definitive era, and I think once those guys all moved on, they, they did struggle for a few years to build the roster back up. And funnily enough, it was the kind of, like, Eddie Edwards, uh, Davey Richards, best of three series that kind of, like, put Ring of Honor back on the map and made them more see wrestling again. It was the yeah. same same angles they'd run six years before, five years before with Punk and Joe. Edwards and Richards kind of did the same thing for them to get them back ticking over again as a viable, artistically satisfying company. 
Yeah, well, that comes back to like the the thing we've said quite a bit. It's like wrestling is quite simple at its core if you do it the correct way. And you know, the Ring of Honor fans want to see good wrestling. You give them good wrestling, they're they're probably going to be pretty happy. So, um, yeah. To so to bring it back to the match, um, you mentioned the commentary team, um, who, yeah, I agree, can be quite dry and irritating <laughs> in that sense at times but i thought what they did do is they did a good job of explaining the background to yeah. all the matches so here like they're speaking about you know the history between generation next and the second city saints um and how punk's babyface turn came after he saved ricky steamboat from the attack by generation next so you know they did a good job of of getting you, particularly for something like this, where you're watching the match out of context of the time, that stuff is actually really useful to know where this sits and like the history in that sense, you know, the fact that Shelley's been expelled from Generation Next at this point um, is, you know, adds to the story that they're telling. Um, yeah, I mean, the match itself, like I think is, is a good match. Like, you know, Punk working over Shelley's arm, um, I love he cracked out that um, old school rope walk and leg drop on the arm, which I always loved when he pulled that out. <laughs> um, and yeah, what I liked about Punk in 2005, you can see here, like in his style is how you could see how the trilogy with Samoa Joe impacted his wrestling style going forward. You know, he added a lot more kicks and strikes to his arsenal, which now again he's just associated with um like brian is they're they're the two kind of came into wwe and brought that kind of you know style to the main roster if you like whereas actually before 2005 punk wasn't really doing that so much funnily enough so yeah. it's interesting to when you can see as we said with um the steen and generico um, collections you can see wrestlers developing over the course of watching matches um yeah but yeah good a, a good introduction to punk i think even if it's not like one of his classic matches much closer to a classic i think is the next one austin Aries defends the ring of honor world championship against cm punk at death before dishonor on the 18th of june 2005 this was supposedly Punk's last match in Ring of Honor. Mm. Prior to this, Punk had been back and forth with the WWE. He was coming to the end of Ring of well, he was coming to the end of his time in Ring of Honor. There wasn't really a contract for Ring of Honor wrestlers back in those days. It was more of a handshake deal because these guys weren't, you know, if unless they were the champions, they weren't wrestling every night for Ring of Honor. They had to go wrestle for IWA Mid South, or they had to go to Canada or California or earn a living somewhere. Um, this was before the days of guaranteed contracts for Ring of Honor because Ring of Honor just wouldn't, you know, they couldn't afford it. It was, it was as simple as that. They were an independent wrestling company. They acted like a territory, they worked like a territory, but they couldn't tie people down to contracts. And Punk was the head of the wrestling school at the time. He was deeply involved in Ring of Honor. And, but there were overtures made to him to come and sign for the WWE. He got a deal that he liked. He walked into the office one day and gave Spalfi up to him down and said, You've signed, haven't you? Mm -hmm. Punk said, yeah, I have. I have to. It's the, the deal they've offered me is just too good to be true, so I have to go. But we can make an angle out of it. And the angle was CM Punk beating Stelstin Aries for the Ring of Honor World Championship. 
in this absolutely classic defining match of the era. We talked about Hero being exceptionally good. And Ares as well is another one who was exceptionally good in this time period. It perhaps doesn't get his due, but it's mainly because he's so awkward a human being. <laughs> yes, he's he's not the greatest human being, I think, is why, yeah, that's the case. Because I, I agree with you. In ring, like, he's phenomenal. And this era, this era, when he was, I can't even remember how young he was, like, ludicrously young at this at this time when he won the Ring of Honor title to be put the output he was delivering was was pretty crazy really yeah he he was outstanding in this era and you probably didn't see as good a match out of austin aries again until he beat bobby Roode for the impact wrestling championship what some what was 2013 so it was nearly eight years later mm. championship and that was the best thing i saw aries austin aries ever do it was better than this match not because Bobby Roode is better than CM Punk, but because just the story that was told was more concise, and I got to see the whole story from beginning to end, and it was actually one. It was the best thing Impact Wrestling did in the whole era, Hulk Hogan era, because they actually kind of saw where things were going and developed it organically, rather than just trying to shoehorn a story around lying around somebody. Um, and Austin Aries was the right man at the right time who stepped up to the cause, and he did here, but that's only really twice in the career he's done that. <laughs> So, you know, whereas this is, which is the reason why I like the guys like Punk or the guys like Brian are the ones that are star status, because the first thing you need in a star is someone who's going to be reliable. Anywho. Um, it definitely helps. <laughs> um, you know, the, the people, because like, you know, I, I do HR stuff and people will say to me, like, what are you looking for an employee? It's like someone who turns up on time and leaves when they finish their work will be a good start. <laughs> if they're polite, that would be great. And then let's build from there. When I'm interviewing people for jobs, it's like, you know, do you look like you're going to do a good job for the company? Those are the valued people within a company. It doesn't matter whether you are cleaning toilets or you're WWE heavyweight champion. Vince McMahon wants somebody who's going to be reliable and do the things he's supposed to do at the time. Or she. Um, so- not always, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> we could have a whole other conversation about what Vince McMahon wants in a champion, but... I'm not really sure anymore. Mm. Anyway, going back, but that's what I'm saying from using Vince as an example. Vince is always the bad example, but anyway. Yeah, Punk vs. <laughs> is it, it's a exceptional wrestling match between two exceptional wrestlers who are at the absolute top of their game in front of a really hot crowd with a really hot angle. Yeah. One of Punk's most famous pre-WWE matches, really, because of everything surrounding it. And it is a phenomenal match. Obviously, the one thing this video doesn't include, unfortunately, is the famous promo he cuts after the match, where Mm. he turns heel on the fans and everything else to kickstart the original Summer of Punk. Um, And yeah, just, just a fantastic angle all around. And the match is a big big part of it because he is such a baby face in this match because everyone and why wouldn't they fully believed it was his last appearance they built it perfectly they'd made everyone believe that and people wanted to see him you know they didn't believe that it would happen they felt like obviously Ares would retain that's the logical thing that's going to happen but they wanted him to do it in his last appearance and yeah for him to then take that 
love and just completely turn it back on them after the match and turn heel and say, I'm taking the belt with me. And, you know, led to all sorts of incredible stuff, like him signing his WWE contract on the title and things like that. Um, Yeah, it's great. It's the thing that marks Punk out, I think, above pretty much anyone in that era was his kind of mind and obviously his ability on the mic, like the promo I think is the first time he mentions a pipe bomb, funnily enough, which became quite big <laughs> in his future. Um, but yeah, you watch this stuff he was doing in 2005 and it's like, how did WWE not recognize what they had in this dude? Like for so long, you know, it took them years and they never truly ever got it. You know, we spoke about the WrestleMania main event thing earlier, like, Vince and Triple H obviously do not really like Punk <laughs> because he rubs them up the wrong way and everything oh, else. I, I qualify but, that. I would say that Triple H doesn't like Punk. I think definitely. Vince likes Punk because he see because Vince has always kind of liked some of the rappers. He really liked Roddy Piper. You wouldn't have thought Vince and Roddy Piper would naturally get along, but they did. And I think he quite likes Punk. I think he likes the way that Punk goes about his business because he doesn't get too many guys that rub against what he wants to say so you know i think i think he kind of respected Punk. could probably liked him a bit you know yeah i mean respect definitely like yeah. but i don't know <laughs> don't think triple h got what Punk was about he didn't like the way that he wasn't a company man i think also with triple h what he didn't like was that this guy had such a buzz i think as well that's you know there's that famous story of punk coming in working one dark match and triple h and Shawn michaels deciding oh he doesn't know how to work send him to to developmental and it's like the guy just had a number of the best matches you know people had seen on the independent scene like I mean, I'll say it, the match he had with Samoa Joe was better than anything Triple H had done in his career up until that point, which might be a bold claim, but I I stand by it. <laughs> no, I agree with you. I um, happy 25th anniversary, Triple H. Yeah. <laughs> just, just digging him out on a podcast. <laughs> sorry. Yeah. yeah. Not really, uh, sorry. <laughs> um. Uh, but yeah, I don't. I don't think they ever, they ever fully got it. Like I've said it before, like punk on the microphone is just something else. Like the guy out talked the rock on the microphone. You know that no nobody does that, and punk managed to do it. So yeah, but that's that's an aside anyway. If people have not seen what comes after this match. That is also on YouTube, so definitely go and check that out as well because it does add even more context, I think, and adds even more to the match. Um, yeah, the the match itself is fantastic, I think. Like, it's definitely one of Punk's best matches. We said, like, with the Shelley match, it's not one of his classics. This absolutely is one of Punk's classics in Ring of Honor. Um, you know, they work to the audience and the emotions of the fans so well i think the psychology is just top class and how they build the match really slowly it's quite a long match this but they keep the fans involved throughout they play up hard to their roles like aries is very much embraces his heel role in this in this match and is playing that idea of getting more and more frustrated by the crowd um 
and losing his focus basically and punk drawing on the energy of the fans throughout to to push through and get the win and yeah by the end the crowd are just at absolute fever pitch um yeah to be in the building that night must have been pretty incredible um and yeah it's that thing of how a great crowd can take a great match and push it even further um and take it like to another level and yeah, I, I think the last five, ten minutes of the match are fantastic. Like the fans are so desperate for Punk to win. Um and it all leads to that great shock ending. You know, the only part I was never fully sold on, um, I don't know what you think of this, but was when Ares hits Punk with the plunge and Punk kicks out at one and fires up. I think yeah. watching it again in the context of what they were doing and trying to achieve in the story, I kind of get it. I just Still, yeah. I'm a bit like, mm, does this take me out of it slightly? Yeah, I, as well, perhaps it's going to finisher, to be honest with you, because it's clumsy and it's awkward. Best finishers are always something you can stick on somebody, anybody of any size, with a surprise from any angle, anywhere. Like, the mm. go to sleep, mm. go to sleep yeah. is a better finisher. Than Absolutely, better. yeah. You know, and I think the Pepsi plunge is a contrived finish because you have to get people on the ropes, which receiver flex is believable. You've got time, but Pepsi plunge requires a certain amount of things to happen in a certain way, and um, it, it just doesn't. That doesn't help. And then, yeah, the kick out on one is just a bit ridiculous. You know, you're saying your finish isn't good enough to be is what? <laughs> yeah, it's a, they're basically playing off the idea that he's just so fired up and won't be denied and drawing on the energy of the fans. So. I kind of get it. I just thought, yeah, that's a bit silly. Because, um, yeah, the, the Pepsi plunge, I agree with you. It's it's a better idea in theory than it is in practice because it sounds so cool. Like, it's a pedigree from the top rope. But in practice, it's, like you say, it's quite clunky to, <laughs> to set that up. You can't hit that out of nowhere and win. So Fishing Ligers finishes, like, the, the 400 different finishes I've done. And one of them used to be a DDT from the top rope. Which is mm-hmm. ridiculously dangerous because your opponent <laughs> either front first bump from the top rope to, to the floor, which is not good for anyone, as we do know now, or they have to go and roll with it and risk landing on their head from seven feet up. Mm. So, you know, <laughs> Neither's <yeah>. great. <laughs> great, no. So, um, yeah, so, and this is one of those which is it's perfectly safe if you're done properly, but it is also, um, you know, it's just contrived. And I don't like that contrite of one. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. Um, but that's that's the only kind of criticism I have. I just th- I think overall this is fantastically put together. I think, you know, they're obviously playing off other stuff like Aries' bad neck coming in to the match. Um, I remember, you know, when Aries does the headstand out, the head scissors and Punk drop kicks his neck. I remember when I first watched that thinking it was absolutely brutal like the death valley driver on the apron as well like i'd <clears throat> i'd never seen stuff like this before at the time like um obviously you go and watch like classic all japan and then noah and things like that it's a lot more commonplace than all japan women as you touched on like this hard hitting style but i'd never seen anything like this at the time we was watching me, me and john did the um gaiaism YouTube channel, oh, mm. watching Professor Atamora and uh, so, so doing, pretty much having the same match that Punk and Neris had. 
they're just laying each other, just laying ridiculous things to each other. Um, but yeah, it, it's. It, 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 but again, it was the first exposure, and again, it comes down to that cultural disconnect. It was the first exposure in North America for this style of wrestling, with this style of presentation, with English commentary, because at that time, not so much now, but wrestling fans were lazy. They weren't going to like go watch New Japan because it got Japanese commentary on it. Even if it was like most people could have got it somewhere on tape trades and one thing or another. I was taught early that it didn't matter where you got your wrestling from, it was the wrestling content that mattered. Yeah, because we yeah. had WCW pay-per-views in the early 90s on German TV because they were free. We got to see them every Sunday, every once a month, every Sunday. I saw every WCW pay-per-view for five years. You know, nice, I, nice. yeah, it was nice, but it was just in German commentary. That's funnily enough. Striga, yeah, that's, that's I, something like, I agree, like the amount of people who, particularly when New Japan started to go through this boom period, who were say oh i yeah. can't watch it because of the commentary it's like it's not hard to you know they tell the stories in such a good way you can it's not hard to follow if you're paying attention yeah and it's, and it's like the same people who were watching at the time were alan cheap shot from twitter um you know striger who's on mlw he watched the same shows that i did and he did and jazzy gabbert that's where she learned to work for a wrestling alpha female what social those matches at the same time and we've all talked about it with each other we you know that's how we got to love wrestling. Yeah. I loved wrestling before them because I'm all older than them. But, you know, we got <laughs> that way. Um, yeah. So we go to the last match, really. Which oh, was just yeah. one, oh, one okay. last thing. Just, yeah, you mentioned the commentary and it just reminded me. Um, on commentary, he actually says, um, I could see CM Punk being in the main event of WrestleMania one day. I was like, oh, that's awkward. <laughs> that's very awkward in hindsight. But... True, he true. was right in the sense that Punk would obviously go on to become a huge star and make millions in the industry. So, yeah, he definitely should have main evented WrestleMania as well. But anyway, that's a different conversation. <laughs> All right, we move on to CM Punk versus Roderick Strong from Escape from New York, which was September of 2005. This was one of the title defences and kind of showed you what was going on in Ring of Honor at the time. Roderick Strong was um, a, a heel, ostensibly a heel. Um, and therefore, you know, he was, he was, um, he was supposed to be booed, but he was a complete hero on this night, uh, <laughs> because of the fact he was wrestling, he was wrestling, uh, CM Punk, who was the biggest of all heels in this particular run. And it was a bit of a classic Roddy Strong performance. He was kind of like the Iron Man of Ring of Honor. Roderick Strong was in Ring of Honor forever, it seemed like. And he had a stretch in Impact Wrestling and they went back to Ring of Honor or wrestled for both of them at the same time. But this seemed, you know, it took an awful long time for Roderick Strong to get to NXT. And mm-hmm. one of those matches that, you know, was really important to his growth and his exposure. But he is kind of like one of those world TV title kind of guys. Roderick Strong's probably the greatest Ring of Honor TV champion ever in that times he held it in defenses and stuff from a, like, a, a kayfabe point of view. But he was that kind of level. And this was kind of that match kind of showed you that he perhaps wasn't ready for a world title yet. I don't know what you think of it. It was great. It wasn't truly outstanding. Yeah, no, I I think that would be my take. I think Strong overall throughout his career is a guy probably slightly underrated. I think Mm. certainly for his in-ring work, he is an absolute workhorse. And 
this was quite early in his career as well. Um, and he's gone on to have quite an incredible back catalogue of matches. I think him going to NXT has woken people up a bit to how maybe underrated he has been. Um, I think it's just his kind of his promos and his character work has kind of let him down a little bit. Um, and you kind of see that here where he's playing the babyface role, but he's it doesn't really work it overall. It's quite bland. Um, but obviously the fans are massively behind him because Punk was hated <laughs> at this point. Like, and it, this is another reminder because it's we were um, speaking before we did this, like quite strange to go back and watch CM Punk matches again because it's been, he's obviously been out of the business for so long. And it was just a reminder to me of how great heel punk actually was because he loved nothing more than winding the fans up and he was so good at it and you saw like early elements of that here you know how you know running away from people you know running away from strong whenever he starts to get the upper hand he's talking shit to the fans he's like Joe and Gibson and Foley are all watching from the balcony. So he's calling them out during the match. Um, Gibson, by the way, full on Jamie Noble jeans and no shirt on, if you notice that, which I enjoyed, um, despite being Stoderbuck's fans, which is very strange. Um, but yeah, Punk, just full heel mode, like very flair-like as well in like his mannerisms and uh, his attitude. He even uh, goes full flare and has his backside exposed at one point, which probably probably didn't need that, but I'm sure some people enjoyed it. Um, but yeah, overall, like it's it's again, like you say, it's a snapshot of that period and the you know that summer of punk run where it's a very good match, but. The storyline in this one is almost more important than the match where they have a very good technical wrestling match that Punk wins in the end by cheating, you know, to keep the the story going. And yeah, I think it definitely showed how, you know, how much of a workhorse Roddy was and how you can see how he was going to develop and become even better beyond that. Um, Yeah. And yeah, again, it's like it's not one, it's not one of his classics, punk. But I think it's a good one because you have to have something from the summer of punk period for sure because it it was so interesting and exciting and different at the time um, and unexpected as well as we touched on. And they couldn't put the match where he loses the title on here because I think that was about fifty minutes or something. <laughs> well, I mean. The next match we're going to look at on the Brian Danielson retrospective happened in the same month, which will tell you how quickly <laughs> things went in Ring of Honor. That was James Gibson, and he lost the title to Brian Danielson on the 17th of September 2005. Now, Brian Danielson had gone away from Ring of Honor. He'd gone on a British tour, actually. He was on a learning excursion to learn with Robbie Brookside and joint promotions, not joint promotions, all-star promotions. He was doing butlings, basically. <laughs> he was doing butlings. He was doing the camps, wrestling twice a, twice a day at a show and then tearing the ring down and putting the ring back up again and then going off to Portugal and doing backdrops in a, in a boxing ring and doing all that horrible stuff you do to learn your trade at the time. 
And uh, he went back to Ring of Honor, and his only reason ever for going back to Ring of Honor was to win the World Championship. Jamie, uh, James Gibson, who had beaten CM Punk for the title, was kind of a stopgap champion. And Danielson walked in on this particular night, which was the glory by honor, the big pay-per-view for Ring of Honor at the time. Um, and he walked into that particular title match as one of the hottest properties in Ring of Honor. And it's, you can see how they kept, it was kind of fortuitous that Danielson went away and gave Punk room to breathe as heavyweight champion. Yeah. And that, yeah. Well, sorry, don't have heavyweight champion, really as world champion. And then when Punk goes to WWE, Danielson slots straight back into the main. <laughs> and James Gibson was just the right guy as a, not to belittle him because I think he's very good, but to throw away champion. They needed somebody who could fill the gap. And by that point, James Gibson was a 10 year pro. He'd worked for WCW. Uh, he'd, he'd, he'd done everything, been there, been to WWE. He knew how to tell stories really, really well. And, you know, the guy's been a WWE producer ever since this point. You know, he's a, he's a, an awesome guy to have in a particular match and just the right person you want to tell this story with. Brian, Daniel Bryanson comes, sorry, Daniel Bryanson, Brian Danielson <laughs> to the company, takes the championship on a very emotional night as kind of a semi heel, but not really a full on heel. Um, and, Sets the world alight. Ring and Ring of Honor are running off, off and running again. What's your thoughts on this one, Alex? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting whether Gibson would have been a stopgap champion. Whether that was the plan all along, I don't know. Obviously, they had to get the belt off Punk because he was then actually leaving, so they had to move the belt off him onto someone else. Um, so they got it on James Gibson in that four corner match. Um, oh. If you want an alternate viewpoint of what this could have looked like, if you go to WrestleCrap, they have a column on there called Rewriting the Book, and then down the years they've looked at different history of wrestling angles and different history, like what would have happened if uh, uh, Mr. Perfect had retired instead of being beaten by Bret Hart in the Continental Championship. And one of this one, particularly one that I liked an awful lot, was what if CM Punk took the Ring of Honor title with him to WWE? And then Gabe Sapolsky trades CM Punk for Ric Flair. Ric Flair goes to Ring of Honor. It's a brilliantly told story. You go with that. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Anyway. Um, sorry, yeah, you were talking. I do apologize. I interrupted. That's all right. Um, but yeah, so I do wonder, because obviously then Gibson also got signed back to the WWE, so they then had to get the belt off him <laughs> onto Brian, who they knew was someone who was going to stick around. Um and he was very vocal about that as well, that he would not go anywhere as long as he was the Ring of Honor world champion, which was both a storyline thing and a real life thing, I think. Um, and I like, you know, in the storyline, like you say, he went away. It ended up giving Punk a chance to breathe. It meant Brian could go and learn other elements of his craft. He came back even better, I think, than he had been before. Um but ostensibly in the storyline, it was he left after he lost to Austin Aries in the title match. And he was like, I can't come back now unless I know I can win the title. And he wasn't going to come back for anything less than a title shot. So it ended up being, like you said, the perfect storm of him coming back. And yeah, great one to start this selection with where Brian Danielson wins the title to begin maybe the still the best ever ring of honor world championship run i don't know what your take is on that 
I I would say so. Maybe Steen's come close to it in recent years. Um, the recent ones have been, I kind of like Jay Lethal's, but it was kind of very much work-a-day, established star. There mm. was no spectacular matches in it. It was good in the sense of they earned more money with Jay Lethal's champion, which is the point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> However, I think, some, yeah, I think Brian's is more... Yeah, it's the work rate and the matches, right? Yeah, definitely. And I think as well, you know, the overall quality of wrestling Ring of Honor is better now than it was then. There is no doubt about that because they've got better wrestlers now than they have then. There was a much bigger gap between the main event and the opening match in the 2005 era than, than there is now, whereas now you can watch Ring of Honor show from beginning to end and it looks like a mint ensemble. No one's bad. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, because I think even in this period, yeah, it was always the main and the co-main were always the things. Um, yeah. And then the rest of the card, like a, like a great example would be like the Joe versus Punk 2 show. Like that main event is historic, but nothing else on that show that is memorable, really. No. And you, you were, they were selling on the stars, whereas now they sell on Ring of Honor being Ring of Honor, mm. you know. Ring of Honor is an experience. They can Ring of Honor as a company with, with an awful lot of help can fill Madison Square Garden. You know, Ring of Honor is an experience. Whereas back then, it, it was Joe versus Punk, it was Danielson versus McGuinness. It was the match that made the the draw. Whereas yeah. now it's the Ring of Honor that makes the draw, which is a much modern, more modern way of running a wrestling company. I'm not convinced that's the best way of running a wrestling company. Uh, but it certainly is a much more it's the WWE, it's the New Japan Pro Wrestling way of running a wrestling so New Japan kind yeah. of the New Japan will will make the star and allow the star to grow whereas WWE will always want the star to be contained within their universe there's a reason why they call it a universe whereas mm. New Japan will quite happily send them off to other galaxies if you need to be whereas, nice. that, very nicely put thank you very much, appreciate that um, yeah, um, so I think that's the that's the key thing about Ring of Honor now. It's a much more modern wrestling company. When in, back then it was still trying to be, well, it was still trying, it was still trying to be Jim Crockett Promotions. Wasn't it? Let's be honest. It was trying to be yeah, Ric Flair versus Ricky Steamboat five nights a week. <laughs> that's exactly it. Yeah, which was yeah when you're for someone like me who's really getting into that style of wrestling, that was amazing because I then went and watched classic nwa stuff on the back of this i went and watched classic japanese stuff on the back of this but yeah it wasn't necessarily a, a sustainable <laughs> business model but i mean uh, it's certainly in terms of brian's title run we spoke about the punishing schedule which yeah, yeah. It, it really was by the end when his it, you know he had the bicep and shoulder injury and kept on working through it um in part because they wanted to, they had to end the the homicide storyline in the yeah. right way with him finally beating Brian for the title on the last show of the year and all that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, I think in terms of like match output, probably still the best Ring of Honor world title run for me. Mm. I think. I think. I think as well, watching this match, and certainly the next match, and the artifacts of all three of them, to be honest mm. with you. At the time, 
Brian Danielson was getting an awful lot of comparisons to Chris Benoit and the Dynamite Kid. He was the next kind of generation of that pool of wrestlers. But watching these matches now, I'm going to requalify that. I don't think he was. I think he was trying to have that dominant run that Dave Finley had in the early 80s in joint promotions. He wrestles <laughs> like Dave Finley does. Fit Finley, for those of you who have not seen it, very few people have, but Fit Finley's World Mid Heavyweight Championship run, which was the defining wrestling one of my wrestling fandom. Marty Jones versus Fit Finley is still the thing etched in my brain of matches that I've seen live and I saw on TV that will never go away. But Fit Finley in that period as a heel champion, a guy who could control a match, he was a ring general. That was what Brian Danielson was after, in my mind. Now I'm watching these matches again. It wasn't that Benoit intensity. It wasn't that dynamite kid flash. It was just pure work a day. I am better than you and I will win, which is what Fit Finley was all about. And I think yeah. That, yeah, that much more kind of lies on that style. Fit Finley can make a wrestling match with a broomstick work, take one bump, and the broomstick will be headlining WrestleMania the following. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, the amount of people I've like seen I've heard stories about him how he books matches and you know how he kind of like lays out matches and the way he way he works the way things work for him it was just incredible and he all did it at walking pace he barely ever ran anywhere mm-hmm. you know and and when he was younger he will personally will admit that he was a rum lad nowadays born again christian a very responsible person <laughs> um, i bought having but you know from from the his 80s in-ring wrestling persona that's what daniel bryan was after he was after that cool calm controlled man in charge of a ring and he was never going to break a sweat if he had to yeah i agree like a lot more uh character based as well which yeah. came in in terms of like the his heel persona which you see flashes of in this match what he was gonna become as like the heel champion on top who i guess you know the the obvious other comparison is someone like rick flair right even though it was not he wasn't being the kind of flashy you know get the girl kind of wrestler in that sense it was going in every night as the top guy wrestling long matches, making the guy look like a million bucks and then still winning basically to annoy everyone in the end. Cause he was still, you know, he, he, yeah. he the whole thing with Brian was he was going, I am the best in the world, which punk funnily enough, then nicked from him <laughs> in his WWE career, which he freely admits now. Um, but yeah, yeah, he was going out saying, I'm the best wrestler in the world. And then he would back it up, which is, you know, that kind of annoying thing with a wrestler where they're, you know, when they're an arrogant heel and they actually can back it up, it's almost even more annoying in a way. It's the Harley Race thing. The yes. Yeah. Junior. I'm just better than everybody else. And that's why I'm the world's heavyweight champion. Yeah. And Harley Race is a really good one as well there's a lot of similarities there yeah definitely you know and there is an awful lot both of these wrestlers have talked about how much harley race influenced their career you know punk was wwe heavyweight champion that big long run his mantra every morning was what would harley do you know (laughs) how harley was the boss he was the man he was the guy everyone was respected everybody turned to harley to lead the entire wrestling industry 
And when it was Punk's turn, he took that very seriously. He wanted to do the job as best as he could. He didn't want to half-ass it. He knew he had one opportunity and he wanted to do it better than anybody else. So, mm-hmm. um, I think that's what um, Brian had in this period as well, which is why he worked as well with that shoulder injury, because he was, yeah, he was the best guy on top and he was going to carry the company basically which yeah very harley race um should we talk about the match itself shouldn't we <laughs> we've talked sort of around it there um yeah. but yeah i mean first of all great to see uh james gibson match you know jamie noble as many people know him a reminder how good he actually is as a worker um horribly underutilized for most of his time in wwe obviously doing great things as a producer now but it was nice that he had this, um, yeah, he had his period on the Indies and in Japan to to really shine for this year between his WWE tenures. Yeah, yeah, and this was a great match. For, it did exactly what you wanted it to do to tell the story of Gibson passing the torch to what clearly going to be this new one-term champion. Yeah, it was basically everything you would want from a match between these two, right? Like fantastic technical wrestling, as I said, hints of Danielson's heel persona without fully going that way. Um, It's essentially a battle of human chess, essentially. And there's, you know, loads of great back and forth counter wrestling. But then um, Gibson brings in, you know, he's sort of playing the heel role here where... Every time Danielson starts to get the better of him, he'll, you know, throw in more strikes or poke him in the eye or something like that, just to <laughs> kind of imply that Danielson's just slightly the better wrestler on this night. Um, and yeah, it, it's great. You know, the closing stretch is fantastic. Like I say, counters to counters and stuff like that. Um, and then, yeah, the final sequence where Brian keeps trying to get cattle mutilation on. And Gibson keeps fighting out of it, but Brian's just got the arms locked constantly. And then he finally switches it to the cross-faced chicken wing for the win is fantastic. And that's something I loved about Brian's title run, as well as, you know, this heel persona, which we've spoken about. And I think people forget how good a heel he actually was because he's so associated with being a babyface from WWE. But he was fantastic as a heel as we'll probably come on to on the next two matches but um something else i loved he won matches in so many different ways during his title reign so here he wins with the crossface chicken wing and it means every title defense after that if he gets that on there's Mm. a feeling oh this match could end now it doesn't it's not just the cattle mutilation and then he you know he would roll people up and would beat them that way or he would um you know, started bringing in the MMA style elbows. Um, and th- there were all these different ways he could win matches, which is a very. Say again? It doesn't happen anymore. Everything was clued, clued into the finisher as a finisher. That's, and, I was just going to say, yeah. You know, and I'll be honest, I kind of blame John Laurinaitis for this a lot as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of a WWE thing. It happens in New Japan as well is that Laurinaitis was the guy who got the reputation for being great at finishes, and that's why he was brought into WWE, but it wasn't particularly contextualized. Jim used to Jim drive Jim Cornette mental when he was working in OVW. <laughs> uh, but because Johnny would put together like these finishes that kind of worked for all Japan in the mid-1990s and didn't necessarily work for anyone else. 
And when you have like a finisher should be over, don't get me wrong, a finisher should be a finisher and you shouldn't kick out finishers if ever. However, you still kind of like any form of variety makes a wrestler stronger. And that's the kind of thing they were after here. And that's what made this so good. Yeah. And it's like, it's in both sides as well, because logically in like kayfabe, you should have multiple ways to win a match. But from the artistic psychology standpoint, like why wouldn't you want all these different ways to add drama to a Mm. match? And that's why I think, like I say, something that marked Brian's title reign out as so good is the closing stretches of his matches were always so dramatic because he had so many different ways he could win matches that it really added that extra element to his work. Yeah, definitely. All right, then we'll move on to the next match, which was from Better Than Our Best, which was the 6th of January, sorry, 1st of April in 2006. Get that right. Uh, 1st of (laughs) April in 2006, sorry, American ways of doing numbers wrong. Uh, oh yeah, it's so confusing. <laughs> Lance Storm actually came out of retirement to wrestle Brian Danielson, which was an excellent way of bringing about more heat for Danielson because a it was a beloved babyface who was just the kind of thing that Ring of Honor needed at the time, but also again it was a big name that came in and had a classic match with Danielson, and Lance hadn't lost a step. He was still running his wrestling school at this point; he wasn't really retired. He was only kind of semi-retired. And, you know, it was a breathtakingly good wrestling match. It was just sorted. Of course, Danielson builds his heel heat and a big name win. That's all important for a heavyweight champion. What's your thoughts on this one, Alex? Yeah, I mean, also we were speaking about um, Mm. this punishing schedule as champion. This is the night after Danielson went 56 minutes against Roderick Strong. Um, (laughs) You can still see, like, the welts on his chest from Strong's chops the previous night. But, yeah... That's basically, again, you know, this this was the kind of schedule you were expected to keep as world champion in Ring of Honor. Um, And yeah, just it was a great match here. And like you say, all those elements, plus the fact that what a kind of rub for Danielson for Storm to be like, I want to come out of retirement and wrestle that guy. Like this guy who was... 24 at the time, I think Danielson was. Storm was like 36, I think. But, you know, Danielson's young. He's still learning his craft, but he's already being recognised as one of the best in the business, even at this point. Um, and, yeah, it's really great match. You know, Danielson, as you said, is in full, full heel mode <laughs> by this point. Um, this is where we start to really see that arrogant heel side of you know um he spends absolutely ages checking his teeth after taking a drop kick just to wind the fans up he you know obviously the the fans are chanting you've still got it so immediately danielson gets on storm in a hold and yells who's still got it now <laughs> you know um and this was all the you know i have until five referee thing that he used to do and yeah this is when he really this was always something when people would be like talking about Daniel Bryan in WWE and how he lacked personality it's like have you watched his Ring of Honor title run because he is so full of personality and he's so 
obnoxious and so good at the way he plays this idea of the arrogant guy on top who says he's the best and believes he's the best and you know everything else yeah, it, it, it was you know it was a classic wwe personal personality personality next to me um mm. and just because they needed him to be a certain thing and yeah. they weren't prepared to ride because Brian's a bit easier to control than Punk, but yeah. Brian takes the path of least resistance. He will get over in any situation, anywhere in the world, one way or another, except Mexico. But apart from Mexico, he <laughs> openly admitted that he was an absolute terrible luchador because he, you know, if you're a luchador, you've got to have a good entrance and a really cool outfit, of which he had neither. Um, <laughs> So yeah, uh, but anywhere else, he will figure out how to get out one way or another. Whether it's work rate, whether it's characters, wherever it is, he will make it work. Um, yeah, it is. It's funny because it is like we're talking about Punk and Brian here, and it's opposite ways of like almost having that self belief and knowledge that you'll get over, and they do go about it in very contrasting ways, which is quite funny. I mean, like the the Brian and Kane hip hop thing that is something Punk would never do. It takes the character. Brian can have fun with his character in a way that Punk just can't, because Punk is so deadly serious about what he does. Mm-hmm. But can switch that on and switch that off, and it's you know it's a very different. It the the Punk the the, the Brian that's like doing comedy skits with Kane is still the same Brian that's wrestling Brock Lesnar, you know. Yeah, and it and, but it can make both work and look believable because he's that talented. But and I, I think. Whoever gave him the credit for that. Yeah, I think with Brian, it was that period with Kane as well was like woke people up to the fact of how much personality he had and how funny he was and, you know, the kind of character work he could do. So in that sense, it, it definitely paid off because people, like you say, who'd seen him do this stuff in Ring of Honor knew he had that in him. It's just, like you say, classic WWE where if you don't behave in a certain way, you're told you can't work or you've not got personality, which, yeah, as an all-rounder, like, Danielson's right up there with the best. I think he said, when he said, when he got, like, lost his NXT, um, when he went out in the NXT, like, reality version of NXT before it became current NXT, mm-hmm. and he went out in one of the early episodes, he said, uh, Daniel Bryan's probably... We've probably seen the end of Daniel Bryan, but I think Brian Danielson will always be okay, and that is true. Yeah. Brian Danielson will always be okay, and we see flashes of Brian Danielson when we need to, but we don't always see him all the time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and um, then we. Okay. Sorry, just to finish this up, like this match also just great to see Lance Storm be able to go in there and have a match this long, this involved. Um, think this is one of the longest matches of his career and i'm so happy that ring of honor gave him that opportunity um and it was like you say it was beneficial for both parties in that sense because it's great for ring of honor it's great for danielson but lance storm obviously got a massive moment out of it as well where he got to have a classic match with a phenomenal young talent and yeah, go longer and do more than he was sometimes afforded to in his full-time career, you know. And you see, like, loads of 
those great little nuances in his work you know how he never stops fighting out of submissions and things like that and how he was adapting his move set for the match you know cracking out the cradle pile driver at one point and stuff like that um yeah it, it, it was just really cool to to see that he got that moment yeah and it kind of echoed what jerry lynn had done for him in eight years earlier in ecw mm. exactly which is probably why the cradle pile driver got cracked out in fact is a little shout out to that <laughs> All right, the, main, the last one of this particular one was probably well, it was the main event of a British show, which may actually be the first time we've actually talked about a match that happened in Liverpool. Yes, a match I was live in attendance for, no less. At Liverpool Olympia, which was a unified, which was the show was called Unified because it was co-promoted by the FWA, but it was really Ring of Honor's first show in the UK, mm. uh, a single show. It was uh, co-promoted by Alex Shane of WrestleTalk TV fame. It's one of the shows that he put together when he was a ring agent for Ring of Honor. Um, ended up being a TNA Impact agent for a while as well because he basically the, the, they used the same booking company, talent booking company in the US. So uh, and he accident I think he did something stupid like accidentally booked Samoa Joe versus CM Punk when Samoa Joe was working for Impact and Punk was working for Ring of Honor. <laughs> was that, oh yeah, was that yeah. on the that UK Super Show? Yeah, I, I think it was at Bethnal Green. I think it was your call, and yeah, he accidentally like booked like like one of the forbidden matches you definitely couldn't have, and he accidentally booked them together. <laughs> oh well, <laughs> it was it was a great card that. So, <laughs> but yes, what this particular match was at the Liverpool Olympia, a great, well-known wrestling venue for joint promotions back in the day. How was it for you then, sir, as you were there live? Yeah, it was. I mean, talk about you know, couldn't believe my luck that Ring of Honor come to the UK for the first time, maybe their first show outside of North America, even. Don't quote me on that, but I think it might have been. Definitely their first in the UK. Um, And yeah, they bring this massive title match to Liverpool, which is basically my hometown. <laughs> so I was, yeah, I was pretty delighted with the situation because that's when, like I say, I was a big, big Ring of Honor fan. Um, and I, yeah, I went with some friends who'd never really watched Ring of Honor before. Um, and we had a lovely time. They they were just, like, blown away, I think, by particularly the last two matches. Because it's funny you mentioned before how the shows as a whole during this period weren't, you know, great from top to bottom. And that was probably true here as well. The show as a whole was quite up and down. But... The top two matches might be the best I've ever seen live. Um, mm. You know, before this match, there was, which probably is on YouTube as well. I don't know. Aries and Strong against the Briscoes was in the co-main for the tag titles. And I'd never seen a tag match like that live. And yeah. it was absolutely unbelievable. You know, the false finish. Um, I, I remember vividly where they take Ares out on the ramp, then hit the doomsday device and he kicks out and the place went nuts. Like me and my, me and my friends were like high-fiving because we'd never like seen anything like this live before. And then, yeah, and then this main event happens, which is this massive historic title match. They're going to unify the top two titles in the promotion and we get to see it live in the UK. Um and they built it really smartly by having these guys, you know, parallel 
title reigns, you know, both having very entertaining, quite long title runs that you can build to this match um, as they'd started to, you know, feud together. And this was a great way to finish off the first show in the UK. And obviously such a great atmosphere because the fans were so behind Nigel. I think even though we all pretty much knew Brian was going to win this, like, but you let yourself get swept up in the atmosphere obviously and yeah they were able to have this incredible match that had everyone on the edge of their seats throughout i think as well i don't necessarily like i think it was a brave move not to have mcginnis win the championship in the uk it's interesting yeah because i maybe i just kind of accepted the ring of honor was brave with their booking because i just thought brian is the favorite to retain here yeah, I, I think for me, the obvious thing to do is to give McGuinness the. But if you're like trying to build a market, which they obviously were trying to do, mm-hmm. the obvious thing to do is to give McGuinness the running. You know, he drops it back on the like later, like the week later on a TV taping. It's only a short first run, but equally, I could understand the story they're trying to tell with Brian requires him to be undefeatable. He needs to not lose for a long period of time. I which... think that's the thing as well. Sorry to jump in. Like they. Yeah. Ring of Honor just didn't do that at the time. They didn't bounce the titles around. Uh, even watching these matches, like the where Punk won the title, where Brian won the title, you can see how big the reactions are because title changes for the world title were pretty rare in Ring of Honor. Oh, yeah. Like Joe, Joe reigned for twenty-one months as champion. Brian, I think, ended up having about sixteen months as champion. You know, that was something they were very keen on. Yeah, I'm going to the guy on top. Sorry, go on. I was going to say, as well, James Gibson has only been champion for a month, so you can't do it again so quickly. Mm. You know, yeah. so I, I can understand where they're coming from, and I can understand <clears throat> kind of booking themselves in a corner for a one off show. And you don't know if it's going to work. This is this, you know, this is the waning days of the wrestling channel. It's not necessarily going to be. Any more Ring of Honor TV anywhere at any time soon. So yeah, it, 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 there were cases to be made for both, but I think they went obviously in the right direction for the overall outlook of the company in the long term. Mm. Yeah, and it's yeah. I mean, on the night it was unbelievable. Like I say you you had the atmosphere was electric because people wanted Nigel to do it, and you had the added drama, you know, the pure wrestling rules. So you had this, you know, they only get three rope breaks and there's the strict 20 count on the floor. And that just, you know, that could be quite restricting. Um, And I think sometimes it was during the pure wrestling titles run. But in this match, it worked so well because it heightened the drama because obviously they worked it in the way you would, where you make McGuinness fully the underdog throughout and it makes the crowd want to see him win even more. You know, wrestling is very simple when you do it right, as we say. Um, and yeah, the match itself, like, just a great example of what these two did every time they had a match. Um, and probably not even the best match they ended up having together, even though this might be the most famous. They probably went on to have even better matches than this one, but they were constantly raising the bar probably too far let's be honest um 
this this to be honest with you, the like, the closing run of this match is it's reckless. It's not even borderline reckless. It's dangerous. Yeah, and it's yeah. The we might as well talk about it now. Like the ring post spot. Yeah, is... if if you put this to a book or anywhere in the world, they would tell you to go away very very quickly and don't come back. Because mm. uh, the spots in it are, are the well, basically. We could give you a warning, actually, before you watch it, because Nigel McGuinness essentially headbutts a ring post until he bleeds, mm-hmm. which, as we know, incredibly bad for your long-term health. Um, thankfully, Nigel's okay. He's not shown any signs of issues with long-term health. But the actual closing, it kind of darkens the end of the sequence for me. I don't want to wish, like, you know, obviously a, a memory of your wrestling youth. I don't want to sully it. But for me, it's, it's uncomfortable watching after that. No, I, I do agree. I think it is really uncomfortable on rewatch. Watching it live, we were sat on the balcony, so where, where basically where the hard cam was as you're watching the video. So I think from where we're watching it, it's probably not as brutal as it was for the people who were on the floor because you can see from their reaction when it happens, they're like, oh, my God. Um, but I think for us, we kind of just thought, oh, we must have um bladed or something like that and in hindsight it might have been a bit more sensible for them to do it that way i know nigel's um very anti-blading in wrestling but i don't know what his feelings were on that at the time but it did you know watching it live it did add to the drama of the match because it, it very much heightened the the tension you know brian kept kicking him over the balcony as he was uh, sorry, over the barrier as he was bleeding. And it meant that, you know, those 20 counts were so much more dramatic. And then they kind of built that crazy final sequence, you know, of them headbutting each other, which, you know, now watching it back is just like absolutely crazy. But in the moment, it was, you know, really dramatic because, again, it's like it was not like anything we'd seen before on like WWE, for instance. Um, and that all led into that, you know, dramatic finish of Brian um, using the MMA elbows to just basically elbow him over and over again until he passed out and the referee has to stop it. Yeah. I, I mean, for me, it was just, it's just too visceral, I think is the thing. It's clearly dangerous. <laughs> and, you know, I think, and, I think they could have done a different finish with less just danger to themselves. I mean, you know, this is not the only spot in, the, in this match that's a bit wayward. Nigel does a Topicon Hilo, which is a bit, uh, bit like crazy into the front row and stuff. And mm. it, I think that there were spots in this match that neither of them needed to do to make this match work. And that's my major concern with it. It's just too much. And it does make it uncomfortable viewing, especially that last closing sequence. Yeah, no, it it definitely does. I I agree. Like it's it is watching it with hindsight. They could have maybe done stuff a slightly different way, but obviously in the moment, and particularly you know these are guys like trying to make a name for themselves. They've got a also this is the main event of this historic show. They're unifying the titles. I think they felt like they had to go the extra mile to make this work, and also the fact that. Um, as we've said, Nigel is losing the match in the UK, so it's like they have to, they probably felt like they had to have him be absolutely brutalised for it to work, and for the fans not to 
you know, turn on it, I guess, which probably wouldn't have been the case because it was just a fantastic match. Yeah, I think I think you could have done it like just like you know, like that Brian with a one submission. There's ways and means of doing this differently without like your biggest star going well, one of your biggest stars going into concussion. You know, yeah. it doesn't make good business sense. And I think if you try to pick like I said, if you try and pitch this to any producer now, it won't get past the producer level. The producer would just say no. Yeah, you, know, you you wonder how much they knew about it in advance, really. Yes, that's the thing. How much did they actually know? But definitely, like, I think that's something they then, they did do in later matches. Like I've said, they, this probably wasn't even the best match they had together. They went on and had some absolutely unbelievable matches after this in Ring of Honor. They, you know, Punk, um, sorry, Brian versus Nigel is one of the all-time great Ring of Honor feuds. And they did, you know, have things where, you know, Brian would just keep putting him in submissions and Nigel would refuse to quit. And maybe that, in hindsight, maybe that could have worked here. But, yeah, in in the moment, it was unbelievable. But I think now with what we we know about concussions and everything else, and particularly the fact that, you know, Brian nearly had to retire because of concussions, you know, McGuinness has had, you know, the hepatitis B issue as well with blood loss and he hasn't explicitly said it but I think concussions played a factor in in his career as well you watch um his title defense against Aries from I think oh 2007 I'm gonna say off the top of my head um where he you know takes he gets slammed in head first into the barricade basically that one's accidental but you, he works that whole match with clearly a really bad concussion. Um, yeah, all that stuff is quite difficult to watch now in hindsight. Yeah, and it's uh, and it's, it does a disservice to a guy who kind of like held the banner for British wrestling in North America and in the world. You know, London's Brawling were a cracking tag team. Doug Williams mm. and uh, Nigel McGuinness were a great tag <clears> team. <throat> Noah as well as, you know, forming the great foundation of a tag team in, in Impact Wrestling. They were they were fantastic. And I think you can probably say that Doug Williams, uh, Nigel McGuinness, and to a lesser extent, Nick Aldis, are probably the guys who kind of laid the foundation for what you're seeing in British wrestling now. Of course, Paige as well, are probably in the same kind of similar sense, but they were the first four who kind of like really stood out in an era when there wasn't that great uh, international presence from the wrestlers who were trying to make a living. They could make a living at home, just about, but they couldn't make it, you know, they couldn't find security abroad. And those three or four wrestlers were really the kind of cornerstone of what you're seeing with British Strong Style with Zack Sabre Jr. now. No, absolutely. For, like, guys breaking into America, like, British guys breaking into America, Nigel's one of the pioneers in that sense, I think. And, like, watching this match back, it is very... You know, it is a shame that Nigel never got his big chance in WWE, you know, for a myriad of reasons. You know, he was signed and then because of injuries, they they didn't go along with it. He ended up in TNA instead. But, you know, when we talk about, you know, Punk, Brian, Joe, AJ, Nigel was one of those guys in that era um, who was, you know, I think he's still the second longest reigning Ring of Honor world champion, which says says a lot in and of itself. And he, you know, the his output in terms of matches was 
absolutely unbelievable in this period, even if, like we say, maybe he raised the bar too high with some of the stuff he was doing at the time. But yeah, I I think it's it's a shame he never got that opportunity. You know, I'm I'm glad they put a documentary on the network, I think about a year ago, where all his peers like Brian, like Seth Rollins, Cesaro, all those guys kind of spoke about how important he was for the business and how much he you know how important he was in that era when they were all coming up and how much they respect him and how much he helped them and everything else and like Seth Rollins says you know he's maybe the greatest wrestler that a lot of people will never see wrestle because he didn't do it in WWE never got that chance and yeah I mean he for me like in one night he made Tyler Black now Seth Rollins a star like um if if they ever release um a Nigel McGuinness retrospective one of these I would assume that match will be on it because the way he worked that match as a champion and made Tyler Black a top guy in one night is phenomenal yeah yeah he was something else and we're going to have to wrap up our coverage today. Thank you for listening to The Trooping Show. My name is James Trooping. You can find me on Twitter at Sheriff Lone Star. You can find Alex at AlexWatt187 on Twitter. Anything else you'd like to plug, sir? Yes. Um, plug the podcast. The other podcast I do, as I always do, um, Did It Cross the Line, uh, which I do with my wife, if you're into football slash soccer, depending on where you're listening to this podcast from. Um, we should have... Uh, a new special maybe today as you're listening to this depending on uh, us recording it um yeah we're gonna look at steven gerrard versus frank lampard which should be a fun one <laughs> right then well that should be very interesting to listen to okay please you can, do <laughs> you can find the troopany show on facebook the troopany show and on patreon the troopany show where you can keep the troopany show free forever for everyone you can also go see Empire Wrestling Magazine due a relaunch soon and to our partners, powerslam.tv, where you can use the code MULLETWATCH to get a free month. Take care. We'll see you soon. Don't know what we're going to be listening to next week. We should also have, of course, we will have uh, Telling Stories back this week. I had took a week off last week because so of trying to get back, to, back into work mode again. And, of course, Wrestling Rewind will be with you on Wednesday or Thursday. I don't know what we'll be looking at this week. Uh, they try and look at different themes at the minute because WWE's a bit dull. So, <laughs> <laughs> so they're, they're trying to. I mean, last week they looked at the, the. Obviously, there was a, a bit of upheaval last week, so they looked at that. This week they're trying to figure out other things they can look at. So they haven't told me what uh, Dave and Dara are doing, but I'm sure it'll be interesting. So we'll listen to them on Wednesday or Thursday. Take care, and we'll see you soon. Bye. <laughs> Are you looking for the newest and hottest in the world of pro wrestling? Then check out the amazing action on powerslam.tv, the biggest indie pro wrestling channel in the world. Get over 6,000 hours of the best events from over 150 of your favorite promotions from 20 different countries around the globe. Brands like Progress Wrestling, Evolve Wrestling, Combat Zone, Defy, PCW Ultra, PWX, Over the Top, Shine, and hundreds of others with fresh content added every day for only $5.99 per month. 
Get your free trial today at powerslam.tv.